0: the the balancing pieces. What it does for me, at least, is gives the sculpture a fourth dimension. All sculpture have height, width, and depth, but the, the movement, even though it's slight, gives it a little bit of a fourth dimension. And every now and then I'll incorporate a mirror into it, which will actually give it a fifth dimension because now the viewer is actually a part of the sculpture for at least that moment while they're looking at it and they see themselves. They are actually part of the sculpture.
1: That's sculptor and auto mechanic Harold Kyle. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. There are a host of people out there whom we interact with in the workaday world who also make art. We never think that the cashier at the dry cleaners might be a writer or that your mechanic is a sculptor. But in fact, these are the folks responsible for most of the artwork that's created. But we often don't see it. They are talented and dedicated to their artwork. They just can't make a living at it. Today, we're launching a new series that celebrates the work of these artists and their commitment to their art. We're calling it Dual Lives. Dual Lives will feature a diverse group of artists from all parts of the country who work at their regular jobs by day and come home at night to paint, write, sing, and sew. Harold Kyle seems like a great way to begin this series. Harold is an auto mechanic who's been making sculpture from found objects for 40 years. He's made art from forks and spoons, from discarded campaign signs. He makes art from pitchforks and hammers, as well as from discarded car parts like fenders and headlights and steering wheels. His sculpture can weigh anything from 10 ounces to over 300 pounds. Harold Kyle had his third one-man show this past autumn at the Mattawoman Creek Art Center in Southern Maryland, where he showed some 50 pieces of art in the Art Center's two spectacular galleries and on its expansive grounds. It's a rare instance where the museum docents urged viewers to touch the artwork. Harold insists on it. He made much of his work to be touched. It's art that's moved by the wind or by curious hands. This starts the pieces spinning and swaying, creating shadows on the walls and lawn. Many of the pieces that move look as though they're balanced on the head of a pin. They're that precise. Yet the shapes look fluid with graceful lines. Harold was kind enough to have me at his Southern Maryland home the Sunday before Christmas. After a tour of his enormous yard filled with sculpture, we sat down over some tea. Here's our conversation. I think it's fair to say you inhabit the world of cars. I do. Both in your day job and in your night job. Tell me about your day job first.
0: Well, I've been doing body and fender work for the past 50 years, the past 40 of which have been at Sheehy Ford in Marlow Heights. I work in that body shop. The owner has been kind to me since I started there. He uh, lets me use the buy shop as a studio, which is almost unheard of. I mean, yes, it's very nice of him to let me
1: do that. Tell me how your boss at the auto shop first found out that you were doing sculpture.
0: It was kind of interesting because I made a spaceship out of car parts. The closest thing, if you imagine a TIE fighter from Star Wars, it's about the way it looked. But it was um, Thunderbird bumpers in the back and Econoline bumpers stretched out with wings coming off. And all the lights worked and everything flashed. And I had little CO2 jets on so it looked like it was taken off and it made little beepy noises and stuff. And he came back, the owner now, this is Mr. Sheehy, he came back one day and I had it in the body shop. And he liked it so much that they ended up putting it on the showroom. And then it stayed on the showroom for a while, and then he put it in different libraries around the county. He had a, a truck taken around to different libraries in the county, and it ended up over at Prince George's Community College for a while. And he said, well, what else are you making? And he says, do you do this all the time? I said, yeah, right now I was working at the house. And he says, oh, feel free to do it here whenever you want. And I said, you mean it? And I said, I, I'm pretty prolific. I I can spend all day doing this. He says, no, as long as you buy your own material and do it on your own time, you're free to do anything you want here. And I said, thank you very much. And for the past 40 years, I've done just that.
1: Wow. That is great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They don't make them like him anymore.
1: How did you get interested in turning body parts, car body parts into art? Were you always interested in art?
0: Well, actually, for the longest time, i refused to use car parts because I didn't want people to think that I was just a car part artist. I went out of my way to use things that had no connection with cars at all. I wanted you to see that I could work with steel, that I could take something to its limits and not just take an old car part and make it into something that looked pretty neat. Then I realized, why am I turning away from this Gorgeous cache of parts that I can use for almost nothing and uh, Some of the pieces have been coming out really well We used to have a guy came by and bought the old car headlights and they would remanufacture them and You would sell them what they was called a core and he would give you five bucks for a headlight even if it was busted, right? and then that dried up and the pile got bigger and the pile got bigger and bigger.
1: That's a pile of headlights that's growing.
0: Yes. And one day our general manager came by and she said, "Uh, Harold, if you're not going to do anything with these lights, you've got to get rid of them. So I spent the next two days cutting the lights open and taking the pieces out, the chrome pieces out behind the clear plastic, and then I started arranging them on the floor. The first two came out really neat, so I gave them to her for her office, which, you know, greased the way to let me do some more in the shop. So uh, I made six more and they were in my show three years ago and they ended up buying those six for the customer lounge. And I'm pretty sure that the new corporate headquarters for Shehe when it opens up, will have several of my pieces too.
1: When did you start wanting to do art? I used to go downtown as a kid. Downtown
0: D.C. Mm-hmm. I went to school at Mackin High School at 14th and V Street and lived in Capitol Heights. So I was always close to downtown and liked going downtown. And I'd go by the museums all the time. But it wasn't until I got in the Navy and was stationed in San Diego, I was just a stone's throw away from the San Diego Museum of Art. And uh, I went over there one day and I was working as a welder in the Navy. So I was already working with with heavy steel and things like that anyway. And I went over there one day and I saw some work by David Smith and I thought, well, you know, this is really gorgeous and I think I can do that. And I went back to the ship and started noodling around with some steel and came up with what I thought was a pretty neat little piece. I still have it as I ended up calling it the doobie tree. It was just a little thing made with um, wheel grinders and it just was kind of neat. And I thought, well, this is neat made a little wooden base for it over in the shop next door, and I thought, well, this is pretty good. I can I can do this, right? And then when I got out of the Navy, I went back to school. I went to Prince George Community College. I started there in 79 and stayed until 99, so I spent the next 20 years taking art classes down there, and which was really good because there was a large community of local artists that we refer to ourselves as lifers. Usually if you go to a four-year college, the sculpture, ceramic, whatever you take, is usually a class or two and then you move on. But on a community college level, a lot of people come back year after year after year. Uh, We have everything from people just getting out of high school to senior citizens. Like in a four-year college, you would meet other artists maybe, and maybe your professor was pretty good at what he did. But on the community college level, we had people who had been doing, like, ceramics for 50 years. And you learn a lot from these people. You know, there's something you actually couldn't learn in the four-year schools. And we had a large group, probably 15 or 20 people that were there year after year after year, some of them almost as long as I had. So it was really good. That's pretty much where I started. When I when I got down there and really got involved in the art, I really knew that this was what I wanted to
1: do. That's so interesting because it also, I mean, it gave you so much. It gave you a support group. It gave you other pairs of eyes. It gave you advice. It gave you a space to work. Right. Not only that,
0: like I said, there were three professional ceramicists in our ceramics class. I mean, these guys did this for a living, the nice thing about the community college was they had their own kiln and you could do these things. Everything was there. They had a foundry. You could do castings, ceramics. Uh, they did raku firings out back so you could do raku ceramics. And it was nice. It was, everything was all centered. It was really a great place to work. And the ideas just kept coming. You know, you'd see somebody else and they, something would pop you could see it pop. and It was just kind of neat to watch the little light bulb come up over top their head, you know. And next thing you know, they get this beautiful sculpture, ceramic piece coming out. It's really nice.
1: Did you always want to work with found objects or did that develop?
0: That kind of developed. I used to do all my own cutting with the steel. I would start with a blank piece of half inch plate steel and I would cut triangles out of and I arranged the triangles into a bridge or something like that and then I started finding these pieces at machine shops that were just basically already cut for me and I've always had this fascination with uh, positive and negative spaces the way machine shops will cut a circle out of something the piece that's left is just as interesting as the circle was and sometimes even more so. And you still have the illusion of the circle being there even though the circle's gone now. So yeah, it's, it's, the found objects are really kind of neat.
1: You talked about positive and negative spaces and how that works in your pieces. Balance is also important. Right. Many of your pieces have some kind of motion and they're balanced, it seems, so precariously.
0: Actually, I do that to take it as close to what it will do as possible.
1: You're saying you want to push that balance to its limit.
0: Right. A lot of the times I stretch that right to the end. Sometimes, well, in all honesty, uh, the backyard was full of pieces that fell off. <laughs> it didn't quite live up to what i had hoped to. But uh, that's you know, a matter of just trial and error, too. But for the most part, the, the balancing pieces, what it does for me at least, is gives the sculpture a fourth dimension. All sculpture have height, width, and depth, but the, the movement even though it's slight gives it a little bit of a fourth dimension and every now and then I'll incorporate a mirror into it which will actually give it a fifth dimension because now the viewer is actually a part of the sculpture for at least that moment while they're looking at it and they see themselves they are actually part of the sculpture so I can actually get five dimensions instead of just the normal three and I I try to look at things like that. It's like, how would this work if it if it twists around like this? If it moves, what's it going to look like later on this afternoon when the sun's hitting it this way? What's the light going to do to the mirror? Whose house is it going to bounce off of across the street? The one was really needed. Just wiggled all over the guy's
1: house across the street. You know, so you you just never know what's coming up next. And the way you play with shadows, there is pieces where. I didn't know what I was more fascinated by, what was on the pedestal or what was on the wall behind it.
0: Some of that was pre-planned, some was just by chance. The, the yellow piece that you saw, that was by chance. Was that- it, it was really chance the way that worked out.
1: And that's a sculpture called Grid in Space. And it has 10 to 12 delicate steel lines emanating about three feet in the air and then slightly bending over. As I said, it's you know it's such a delicate-looking piece, and the silhouette is pretty spectacular. The way it fell over like that was strictly
0: by chance. I had laid it down on the ground and it was it was actually laying down flat. And when I set it up, it fell over that way. And my first response was to grab and go, "Oh no!" And then I just let it go, and it fell over and stayed there. It was like, "Oh wow, that's..." really pretty. So I just welded it down and left it stay just like that.
1: You see, this is what's so interesting to hear you talk about your work and to see your work is that there has to be such precision involved on one hand, but on the other hand, you, f- you seem to be perfectly open to chance at the oh, same yeah. time. How do you weigh that back and forth?
0: Well, to give you a good example would be the, the, the yellow and orange pieces that bounce in the wind and move. When I first got those, they were the leftover parts of uh, a piece that the customer wanted circles, and these were the leftover stampings from what the circles came from. And for the longest time, all I did, all I could come up with was stacking them up. And then, oh, six, seven months ago, I started slicing every other hole and twisting them, and they would just twist around and come to a point. And the first red one I did out there, it just came around and it was like, okay. And then I just welded it down. And the second one was the same thing. And then the third one I thought, well, what if I put it on a point? And it went right inside that circle, basically all by itself again. It was like, well, I like this. I wonder if it'll last outside and so far it has.
1: You just seem to be so fascinated by being able to balance.
0: It tickles right. me. <laughs> I tickle myself sometimes. You know,
1: you wonder, okay,
0: can I make this work? And I, I honestly wish I could remember the guy's name, but it had to be over 20 years or so ago. There was a guy that had a piece down at college, and it was a chair. And the, the chair had all these other things hanging off of it, but the chair was balanced on a point. So the whole sculpture kind of moved around, but it was the the balancing part of a chair. If you just pick a chair up and bounce it on your finger, you'll eventually find a place where it, it settles in. And that's basically the way I do these things. I'll move them around a little bit and see where they settle. And if they settle in right, that's where I mark them. and Just leave them right there.
1: Hmm. Let me ask you this, and I don't know if I asked you this as directly, but what fascinates you about geometry so much?
0: You know, it's one of those things I've been fascinated with it all my life. I've just loved the way circles and squares and triangles and cubes and cones and cylinders the the way they all relate to each other Uh, again back to the positive and negative i just love the way a circle goes like this and a circle down here will form a cone even though there's no cone there your mind will form a cone the geometry of a shadow I, i was never that good at geometry at school but I think I've made up for my fascination of the shadows and stuff. Um, a guy uh, at the last show said that he was an engineer, and he could tell just by looking at it that whoever was working on this was in the engineering. Well, I've never really been in the engineering other than working on the cars, but I found that to be a very nice compliment because it, it is engineering. It, it, to try to make these things balance out and still make them look nice is... It's just really neat. It's it's fun to do.
1: Well, you have many pieces that I guess can be called indoor-outdoor, pieces that can be kept outdoors in a garden or in a yard.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, some of them are definitely outdoor pieces, but a lot of them are really nice inside, too. Like the little uh, bouncing pieces, they make nice shadows in the house. Mm-hmm. You'll get five or six different shadows cast as it spins, and it'll just make a lovely little shadows. as it goes around. I always get a kick out because... Until you see it move, you really don't get the full gist of it, especially the one balancing piece that was on the rock. Until you moved it and saw it move inside the other piece, it was really quite ordinary just sitting there like, okay, what's he trying to do with this? But once you see it move and rock inside itself, it, it takes on a whole new meaning.
1: That piece had two spherical shapes, one of them inside the other, and... They were on top of a rock, Mm -hmm. and they moved independently of each other, balancing really, again, pretty precariously on that rock.
0: Yes. And I find not only with adults, but kids, they just go, ooh, (laughs) that's neat. And I find it's not really that spectacular. I mean, balancing toys and things like that have been around for hundreds of years, they still make little bouncing toys for little fishermen or little boats and stuff like that. You see them in celebrity stores and stuff like that. I'm just taking it to the next level.
1: Some of your pieces are very, very large. How, how do you manage?
0: Not very well. <laughs> in all honesty, I had a backyard that was so full of sculpture that when I moved to my present house here, I ended up giving a lot of stuff away just because I just... Couldn't deal with trying to move it.
1: Was there an average weight? What are we talking about?
0: Oh, a couple hundred th- pounds. Three, four hundred pounds. Some of, um, There's a piece down at the Arts Center that's actually 14 feet tall. The, uh, some of the earlier ones were probably 10, 12 feet tall. I got away from that real quick.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's always a consideration. There's the artistic vision, but then there's the practical aspects of life. Well, actually,
0: one guy said something. It, was, it kind of hurt my feelings back in my early days before I thickened my skin a little bit. He was like, well, uh, it's okay, but it, it's just big. And I was like, you know, I think he's right. You know, would it look as good if it was just small? You know, I've always thought if somebody's look at your work is quite comforting. I mean, I like to see that it's not pleasing everybody. I like to see that, you know, at least they took the time to look at it.
1: Yeah, I could see that. In other words, of course you want people to like it, but if they think about it...
0: You win. You win. I, I remember an art teacher told me a long time ago that if you go to a museum and look at people and watch them in a museum setting, if they're one piece for more than 30 seconds, it's quite unusual. For the most part, you'll get 15 to 20 seconds. If it's something really... Neat to look at for 25, 30 seconds at most. If I can hold somebody for thirty five seconds or more, I win. I, I remember when they first opened the Hirshhorn, one, I couldn't couldn't get enough of that place. It was like I was walking around outside like I'd died and gone to heaven, you know. All the sculptors that I ever met that I really liked were there,
1: you know. How do you go about creating your pieces? Do you sketch them out first? Do you start with the material where do you begin? actually
0: it's depending on what i have if i had like a whole bunch of those headlight pieces i would lay three or four out and see where i could go with it what kind of pattern i could make that was pleasing how to rearrange things and stuff like that and uh, just go from there and if i got one that worked really well i'd go with the second third fourth fifth sixth until i ran out of pieces i've never been stuck something to do. I can make art out of almost anything. A little pat of my own back for that, but I can. I can make art out of almost anything. I realized that a long time ago. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be shiny. It can just be. And there's art in almost every artifact. That's the first part of artifact is art.
1: Can you describe a hammer that you showed me in your shop if it's possible to describe it? I will try to do
0: that. I work in a body shop like I mentioned before. And I had a co-worker who also worked there for 40-odd years, but he was the shop painter. And for the first 25 years or so we worked there, all the paint came in little quart cans. So whenever he mixed paint up, he had this little short-handled ball-peen hammer that he'd hammer the, the lid back on the can with. And eventually the paint would splash up on it, it got thicker and thicker. It didn't really look too much like a ball peen hammer anymore, it just looked like a big glob of paint, but you could tell it was still a hammer. And about 15 years or so ago, they stopped using the tin cans with all plastic. And this particular hammer laid on the same bench where paint was splashing on it five or six times a day for the next 15 or 16 years. And eventually the paint built up to, it was close to an inch thick. And I saw it back there one day. I said, can I have it? They said, sure, go ahead. And I started cutting down into the layers of paint. And the only way I can describe it is a rainbow gone crazy. It's every color of every car that's ever been made for the past 40 years. And it built up in all these layers that you couldn't do
1: if you tried.
0: And when you cut down across it, it was like cutting into old tree rings. It was really kind of neat.
1: You seem to have the ability just to see what's there.
0: Sometimes, yeah, I think so. If I had 125 years left, I don't think I'd come out of all the ideas that I have now. And I'm still being bombarded with new ones every time I go somewhere. I see something new that I think would be neat, neat to try or neat to do. And I'm forever picking stuff up. I just, yeah, I drive people crazy. I pick stuff up when I was in.
1: What's the story of Evil Mickey?
0: Evil Mickey was pretty neat. It's made out of some gears. It's a ring gear and some transmission gears. I had read this book of all the famous people who had made something of Mickey Mouse. Abstract, sculpture, ceramics. But the whole book was filled with Mickey Mouse, famous people. So I thought I was going to be famous someday, so I had to make a a Mickey myself. So I made that Mickey Mouse, and um, I thought it was just hilarious. I just loved the way the eyes wiggled around and the way his little whiskers bounced, and he just had that big smile on his face. And I brought him in the house, and at the time, Ryan, I think, was uh, 10. Your son? Yes, my son Ryan. And he looked at it, and he says, Oh, Daddy, what are you going to do with that? That's the I want to put it in the house. He says, oh, Daddy, please don't put that in the house. That thing is evil. It's an evil Mickey, Daddy. Please don't put evil Mickey in the house. So Mickey got banned into the woods up until time for the show. So I thought, well, you know what? Mickey's been in the woods long enough. I'll bring him out. But I did put him in the show as Evil Mickey. And Mary Agnes Swan, who's the president of the Arts Center, decided she really liked it, but she insisted I change the name to Good Mickey after she bought it, and I said, no problem. You buy it, you can call it anything you want. <laughs> so that, that's that's the little story about Evil Mickey.
1: Now tell me a little bit more about the show. The show is where?
0: This was at the Madden Creek Arts Center. It's located in uh, Mawberry, Maryland, inside Smallwood State Park. It's uh, it's an independent arts center, non-profit, but it's open to anyone in Southern Maryland to be a member or show their work in the gallery.
1: And the gallery is really quite beautiful. Isn't too. It gorgeous? It's really it, good it, rooms. It, when I
0: think about that, if you had that gallery in Georgetown, you'd be in a $10 million gallery. It's just gorgeous with the open beam ceilings, the lighting from the, the windows, up. and the lighting inside is all new, all new track lighting. And with the mantle there, it's just enough hominess to take it away from just being four walls and a ceiling.
1: And that was a one-man show. Yes, it was. And you did very well, aside from getting wonderful reviews. You also sold a lot of artwork.
0: Yes, I did. I was very pleased with that, especially down there in Southern Maryland. It was 35 miles due south of Washington. Even this time of year, is just gorgeous as you go down through there.
1: And you give your art away as Christmas presents?
0: I do. I've scaled down this year. This year, I've uh, decided to do coffee canes. I take coffee cans and I torch them, and I make uh, lanterns with the coffee cans.
1: Tell me what your next big project is.
0: I had a piece at the last show. It was called The Guardian. Uh, My son was very disappointed that it sold. I was not, but uh, he was disappointed it sold. He really liked that piece, but it was made out of inch thick plate steel. Although it was only maybe five foot tall, it probably weighed in about 350, 400 pounds. And uh, I've got this similar kind of metal work, and I was thinking about making my son another one.
1: Harold, thank you. And thank you for giving me part of your Sunday before oh, Christmas. I pleasure, so appreciate that. That was artist and mechanic Harold Kyle. You can check out his sculpture in today's artworks blog at arts.gov. You can also find Harold on Flickr at HaroldKyle Kyle, 1949. This is the first podcast in a series that we're calling Dual Lives, a celebration of artists with talent and dedication who have to work regular day jobs to make ends meet. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed.